Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and I'm going to tell you about a 50-year-old cold case, triple murder in Tallahassee. Still hasn't been solved. Kind of the biggest thing that ever happened in the state capitol in terms of a crime. Also, I'm going to update you on the Wellington Killer Clown case in which the prosecution has been seeking the death penalty against Sheila Keene Warren. You might recall she allegedly dressed up like a clown and shot the wife of her future husband right in the face. Also, you might recall in episode 12 of Full Rigor, I told you about the terrifying last moments of a 14-year-old babysitter in Delray Beach who was stabbed and raped by an intruder while the children slept in the next room. Meanwhile, the perpetrator is still alive today, sitting on death row 30 years later. Today's story, I'm going to tell you about an unsolved triple murder that happened again 50 years ago in Tallahassee, the worst crime to ever darken the door of that city. And the victims were discovered by one of their daughters who came home from babysitting on a Saturday night, which was an FSU game night where the whole town was at Dope Campbell Stadium except for the Sims, who were unfortunately at the wrong place at the wrong time. It was Saturday, October 22, 1966. 17-year-old Norma Sims had been babysitting for a family that had attended that football game at FSU against Mississippi State. And when the game ended and the family returned, she returned home. And when she opened the front door, nobody welcomed her. And she thought that was kind of weird. The television was on. I think the radio was on. The house was located at 641 Muriel Court. So she began walking through the house looking for everybody. And eventually, she entered her parents' bedroom. There, Norma Sims found her father, 42-year-old Robert Sims, still alive, lying on top of a flowered bedspread, bound, blindfolded, and shot in the head. On the beige carpet, she found her mother, Helen Sims, who was 34, bound, blindfolded, and shot in the head, and once in her leg, and she was wheezing and still alive. Diagonal to her mother, Sims found her younger sister, Joy Lynn, who was 12, Still in her nightgown, she was shot in the head once and stabbed six times in the abdomen. She was dead. So like I said, when Norma got home, her parents were still alive, but her mom eventually was transported to the hospital and lost her fight for life nine days later. It was the owner. Now, remember, back then, there was no 911. There was no, actually, there was no ambulance service. So Norma, the 17-year-old daughter, her real name is Norma Jeanette Sims. She went by the name Jeannie. Called the Beavis Funeral Home, which had an ambulance. And Russell Beavis and his 16-year-old son, Rocky Beavis, were the first ones to arrive on scene. And upon arriving, Beavis sent his son to fetch something to unbind the parents in an attempt to save their lives. And one of the first investigators to arrive was Larry Campbell. You're going to hear that name a lot throughout this story. The 24-year-old at that time then became the lead detective from the Leon County Sheriff's Department on the case, and they would eventually become the sheriff. So almost immediately, robbery was ruled out as a motive for the murders because they found money lying around, they found jewelry, they, the house wasn't ransacked, there was no evidence of anything being moved or stolen. I want to let you know that a student from Florida State University a few years ago, Kyle Jones, produced and directed a fantastic documentary on the Sims murders. And it was for a school project called 641 Muriel Court. I'm going to be using excerpts of the interviews that he conducted in that documentary throughout this podcast. And here's what some of the townspeople thought of the Sims. First Baptist Church was their social home. Uh, they spent a lot of time there. They were active congregants there. 
They were friendly if you saw them in the grocery store. They were nice people. Nobody deserves something like this to happen to them. And these people remember that day, October 22nd, 1966. It was a beautiful fall day, breezy, the windows were open, and the Seminoles were playing Mississippi State, so many of the townspeople in Tallahassee were at the game. Lots of people were at the game. Jenny and Judy were babysitting for families that had gone to the game. Robert and Helen and Joy stayed home. And this case has been going on for five decades. There is a Facebook page, if you're interested, Justice for Joy, Solving the Sims Murder. But going back to the scene that night, there was no forced entry. And here's what Rocky Beavis remembered about the frantic call from Jeannie Sims. And my father came home just as the phone rang. And uh, I picked it up on one extension because he was walking in the back door and picked it up on another extension. You could tell from the tone of voice um, that something terrible had happened. So again, when they arrived, Mrs. Sims, Helen, was showing some signs of life, was still breathing. So was Robert, the father, but Joy was dead. Now, this whole massacre happened on Campbell's birthday. So he was ready to go out and party, and he got the call. It came over as a car accident. And he's like, can you get somebody else to please do this? And one person dead. And then it came over as two people dead. And then it came over as a signal five, which is a murder. I mean, having been a traffic reporter, signal seven is a dead person. Signal 69 is livestock in the road, by the way. But when he heard it was a signal seven, he said, oh, wow, this is a big deal. And he made his way to the scene. And so did the neighbors, by the way. The whole place was lit up with cop cars there was a big turf war between the sheriff's department and the police department and flash bulbs going off and neighbors were going into the home and taking souvenirs like an ashtray and putting cigarettes out in an ashtray investigators made a pot of coffee because they knew they were going to be there for a long time all three of them are bound with ropes joy the 12 year old has been stabbed seven times and has her underpants down around her ankles helen was stabbed and shot and was halfway across the room. And uh, Robert was apparently shot and and bound, uh, still sitting in his chair. Well, actually, according to the police report of that night, Sims, Norma Sims, found her father, Robert Sims, lying atop the flowered bedspread, bound, blindfolded, and shot once in the head. What a scene for that young kid to come home and see. It had to just completely traumatize her for the rest of her life. So when Rocky Beavis and his dad arrived from the funeral home with the ambulance at the scene, they were shocked at the freshness of the scene. Mrs. Sims is still showing signs of life. She's still breathing. Mr. Sims is still breathing. Joy Sims, unfortunately, is dead. Within moments, I was scared um, because, it, I mean, it, it had just happened. So there was a turf war, as I said, between the sheriff's department and the police department, but really... Neither department knew how to handle a crime scene of this magnitude of a triple murder. The sheriff's office, I think, made mistakes with how they treated the scene that night, but I don't fault them for those things. I think the the bigger problem was that they couldn't work with the police department, um, and that started to show up that night, and it continued on a few days where they just wanted to run the investigation. So, of course, back in 1966, this type of thing, you don't have DNA, you don't have uh, cell phone triangulation. There were several suspects in the case 
But really, they were looking for motive and who would kill the whole family? I mean, who would kill the husband, the wife, and the daughter? And it had to be premeditated because whoever it was brought rope, a knife, a gun. Maybe it was more than one person. And also you heard that there was a sexual component to this triple murder. Joy, the young daughter, was found stabbed in the abdomen, shot, and her underwear were down around her ankles. Presumably, she was sexually assaulted. So one of the first suspects was the pastor at First Baptist Church. You might recall the person saying that the Sims family were really good people and they practically lived at the First Baptist Church. Well, the minister there, C.A. Roberts, was an extremely spellbinding speaker. I mean, he was messianic. Women fawned over him. People would go to the first sermon and then they would go back at 11 o'clock to hear him speak again because he was so mesmerizing. In fact, he was awarded the Tallahassee Junior Chamber of Commerce and Florida Man of the Year when he arrived in Tallahassee from Texas. He also led the prayers at FSU Stadium back when they allowed prayer. <laughs> and uh, so the night of the murders, he was at the stadium leading the team in prayer. But Helen was his secretary at the church. And she had quit her job just days before the murder. And the speculation was that she knew the kind of man who was behind the curtain. So Helen Sims resigns her post as secretary of First Baptist Church just days before the murder. And we don't know exactly why she resigns her post, but the rumor is that she knows too much. We think he's having affairs with lots and lots and lots of women. And we know this because what happens is, as soon as the uh, Sims family murder happens, and he is eventually named as a suspect, the phones start ringing down at Tallahassee PD. Well, he eventually pieces this together, that as soon as uh, C.A. Roberts is named a suspect, all the women he's having affairs with get really kind of nervous. I know what you're thinking. Did Helen Sims have an affair with him? Well, even to this day, it is believed that there was no love triangle between C.A. Roberts and Mrs. Sims. And she got out of there because she just saw this procession of women going in and out, and she knew too much. I don't believe there was a love triangle involving uh, the Reverend Roberts and Mrs. Sims. Uh, that is one thing people have speculated about for years. I found no evidence of that anywhere. So that night, C.A. Roberts did have a strong alibi. As I told you, he was the pastor at the FSU game. He could be seen on camera every five minutes. They had actually taken film of the game. Investigators even drove from Doak Campbell Field to the Sims house to see if they could make it in time between the first half of the game and the second half of the game. And it just was impossible. Well, the sheriff said we tried every route through every traffic conditions we could think of to get from Doe Campbell Stadium to the Sims house and back on the time period that he was gone, and it was impossible. They never found a segment in the game film where he was not visible for more than three or four minutes. So they, they absolutely proved that he, he did not live. There had been a rumor that he had left for an unexplainable amount of time and, and came back with cuts and scratches. Well, they interviewed him within two days. There were no cuts and scratches. But it is possible that C.A. Roberts could have instructed somebody else to kill the family. Investigators say he did have a cult following. He was known to have a cult following, according to some of the church members. If, uh, if he had instructed these followers to go kill somebody, they would have done it, according to some sources I talked to. Of all the evidence that I've seen in this case, I feel strongly that 
the murders have something to do with this pastor, C.A. Roberts. I mean, I'm going to go into other suspects, but I really believe that he had something to do with it. I just think it's shady that Mrs. Sims quit her job working for the pastor just days before the murders. The timing, there's no such thing as a coincidence in law enforcement. Now, there's been multiple persons of interest over the years, including C.A. Roberts. But also there was a teenager who lived right around the corner from the Sims and would later in life go on to commit a grisly murder in Atlanta. At the time of the murder, 16-year-old sophomore Tommy was living around the corner from the Sims. He would later go on to join the military, and then he was discharged from the military for mental illness. He became a chiropractor in Atlanta, and then he committed a heinous murder as an adult. And people started putting two and two together. They say, hey, didn't he live near the Sims at the time of the triple murder? I mean, if he can commit a murder like this, why couldn't he have killed the Sims, is what they were asking. Well, the murder in Atlanta did not have the same M.O. as the Sims murders. However, when police arrived at the scene, they saw Tommy holding a liver of a disemboweled woman in a jar. Her body had been torn apart. He told police that he thought Satan would be chained for a thousand years if he cut the victim's liver out. He told police he was worried that he was possessed by the devil or might be the devil himself, Lucifer. So another really important person in the investigation of the murders is Tommy Fulgham, who's a 16-year-old boy, a sophomore at Leon High School. Uh, jump ahead when, uh, to, to when Fulgham is 29 years old. He's living up in Atlanta. And he commits a murder that would maybe even cause Hannibal Lecter to blush. We find him with a liver in a jar and we find a disemboweled woman that he's just murdered in the apartment with her hands cut off. So uh, Fulgham, while he's up in Atlanta, apparently interested in chiropractic as a profession, befriends uh, a husband and wife, the Cars, and proceeds to tell the Cars over a series of days, I believe it is, that he's worried he may be possessed by the devil. And after that, he goes a little a step further and says, I might be the devil. But as a kid, little Tommy Fulgram lived two blocks from The Sims at the time of the murders. He was in the 10th grade, 16 years old, and really small of stature. He didn't play football. He was in chorus. So that gives you an idea. And apparently he was really cute. And he didn't really start to develop and get bigger until after high school. He bulked up for the military. And then he had the mental issues. So his fingerprints were not found at the scene. There were over a thousand fingerprints taken from the scene and he had a solid alibi he was at a party that night and several people told police they saw him there all night tommy was a good suspect because he lived so close and did commit that weird brutal murder in 1978 but they couldn't find anything conclusive again the prints didn't match any at the crime scene and neither of the surviving sims brothers knew who he was so remember there was no forced entry no signs of robbery no sign of a struggle So investigators poured over the crime scene again. They lifted nearly a thousand fingerprints. Back then they didn't have DNA and they didn't have cell phone triangulation. And so there was nothing that led them to the killers. The murder weapon, weapons were never found. Gun, knife. One of the things that we really did need was, and it would be nice to have, is 
the firearm that was used, if we could recover the firearm, that would be very beneficial. Doing the work that we're doing, it's easy to forget that you got three people who were murdered, who went to their grave, probably knowing the person who did this, and we've never gotten justice for them. And here it is 50 years later. So Campbell, who became the sheriff, maintains that he does know who killed the Sims family, and he believes there were two murderers because he believes that it would take at least two people to do what was done to those three people and that it was a sex crime and that one of the suspects had a hang-up with dead people and probably engaged in necrophilia. I don't know if there's any fluids from back in the 60s, if they even kept those fluids to be tested for DNA, but Campbell refuses to name the two suspects. He concedes that barring a confession, the murder will remain unsolved. And Campbell and another detective began interrogating a woman for hours in 1987. She came forward 20 years after the murders. Her name, Mary Charles LaJoy, she lives in Jacksonville now, had a boyfriend who lived near the Sims family. She eventually married him. Then they divorced. And she did submit to being interviewed for several hours. She said that she remembers going to the Sims house that night, but she can't remember the details. Here's an excerpt from her interview. If been out there looking at Mrs. Sims, okay, you know, I'd say, hey, okay, you know, nothing's wrong with a guy, you know. <laughs> At least she had something to look at. Yeah. But yeah. my God, that kids, those girls are... Yeah. I mean, well, really, they are. And they wouldn't have had... They wouldn't have had anything to tell the fun of. So police asked LaJoy if she killed the Sims because she was jealous that her boyfriend was looking at the women. She has the idea that she could get me put in jail without her getting put in jail. If she'd had her brother, she would have killed me. Seeing me in jail for life, that would be next best. He might have been trying to go in there and commit the perfect murder and me. And LaJoy's boyfriend told detectives in 1989 he had nothing to do with the murders and that his ex-wife, LaJoy, was trying to pin them on him because he stopped paying alimony. So he now lives in St. Petersburg and he theorizes that gangsters killed the family. It could be, you don't know. The murders really kind of destroyed all of the peace in Tallahassee. They were respected people and a close-knit family. Robert Sims was the director of data processing for the Florida Department of Education. His wife, Helen, the former secretary of the First Baptist Church of Tallahassee. The family was then later buried at Hebron Baptist Church Cemetery in Mississippi. And by the way, just as a side note, Leon County's longtime sheriff, Larry Campbell, that I've been talking about throughout this podcast, died in 2014 at the age of 72 from cancer. He died on Christmas Eve. Campbell was a former United States Marine with more than 50 years of law enforcement experience. And I am sure that Sheriff Campbell was haunted by this Sims case until the day he died.
And recently, evidence from the scene has been resubmitted to FDLE labs in hopes that new technology will give detectives a lead, but so far, nothing. Detectives never determined if more than one person committed the murder, but they do admit the crime would be difficult for only one person to commit, and the sheriff's office couldn't say when they last had contact with the two surviving Sims' daughters. And now an update on the case of the killer Wellington clown. This was episode 13. I'm updating it because the prosecutors have taken the death penalty off the table for the Wellington woman accused of dressing up like a clown and shooting her future husband's wife in the face while carrying a balloon that says, you're the best. (laughs) Assistant State Attorney Reed Scott filed notice earlier in February in Palm Beach County Court that the state is not seeking the death penalty against Sheila Keen Warren, who's charged with first-degree murder in the May 26, 1990 fatal shooting of Marlene Warren. Sheila Keen, that's how she was known at that time, allegedly dressed like a clown and fatally shot Marlene in the face when she opened her door to Wellington home. Marlene had been eating breakfast with her 22-year-old son and several other friends and was surprised and commented, oh, how nice, with the balloons and the flowers and the gun. Pulls out a gun and fires at point-blank range to Marlene's face. She was home with her son and several of his friends. A vehicle pulled up in the driveway, noticed someone dressed as a clown, exit the vehicle and approached the front door. The clown walked to the door and then Marlene answered the door. So after shooting Marlene in the face, the clown then holstered its weapon and calmly walked back to a white Chrysler LeBaron, which he or she had arrived in and then drove away. Marlene Warren died at the hospital two days later. Keen Warren was considered a suspect for a very long time. It took investigators 27 years to finally arrest her. She eventually married Michael Warren in 2002. They moved to Tennessee. They opened a restaurant, and she was arrested in Virginia in 2017. Keen Warren's murder trial is scheduled to begin in May, and again, the death penalty is off the table. So just some final thoughts here. I had a very disturbing phone call. I received it Saturday night about 9 o'clock. And I noticed that it was from the Broward Sheriff's Office BSO. When I answered the phone, it was a homicide detective. Okay, so I'm alone. And I'm getting a call from a Broward homicide detective. And when you hear that over the phone, all kinds of stuff goes through your head. I have been estranged from my mother for years. She lives in Broward County, which is just south of Palm Beach County. And I was worried about her because she was 84 and I had done a well check on her and sent an officer over there just to, because she wasn't answering her phone and she wouldn't open her door to me. And she was, she had her faculties and, you know, was able to keep her house extremely clean, but she just did not have any outside contact with anyone, including myself. So this homicide detective proceeds to tell me that they had a call from a neighbor smelling a foul odor, and they entered my mom's unit through the window. And they, so the power is out at her place. Mind you, my mother pays her bills. She must have like a 850 credit rating. I mean, she pays her bills before they're due. She's diligent so for the power to be out there's something majorly wrong can you imagine entering in the dark a yeah a hot condo that smells of death 
And these officers enter the condo and they find my mom in the bathroom. She's been there. They tell me, the officer tells me on the phone, she's been there at least four weeks. So I said, well, look, I'll come down there. No, don't come down here. He said, I'll bring everything to you because a lot of Broward deputies live in Palm Beach County. So he was able to find her living will. I'm the executor there. And he was able to, that's how he found my name and was able to track me down. So he brought everything to me and he handed me a flyer that had a list of companies that clean up scenes because, you know, the body had been in the bathroom. Apparently she was in the bathtub or bath taking a shower and so they found her there she was naked on the floor we don't know if she I don't have the autopsy results yet but something happened she could have had a stroke or a heart attack or she could have slipped and fallen and broken her hip and couldn't get up I mean who knows we don't know and he says does your mom have any identifying characteristics I said well she does wear a partial where her two front teeth uh, are part of a partial and she did have someone step on her middle finger on her left hand when she was a kid and so the middle finger nail kind of wraps around the tip of the finger he's like well no it's it's pretty much too decomposed to those won't help what about a tattoo I said no no tattoos what about a surgical scar no she doesn't have any surgical scars so it really got me thinking because I didn't know who our dentist was, and they're like, well, we can't identify her. We might have to come take a mouth swab from you and do it through DNA. I'm like, okay, of course. I need, if you need to do that tonight, let's do it. So as I said, the officer came up and, and gave me the keys to the house and because I had no keys or anything. And he gave me a printed pamphlet that had the names of companies that clean up crime scenes or death scenes and I had already actually gotten on my iPad and googled for a company that would clean up biological fluids and after a sudden death or at a crime scene and I came up with this company Aftermath and so I called them up and they said that if she had homeowner's insurance they could just charge the homeowner's insurance and that they would meet me tomorrow the next day Sunday at the scene and give me an estimate so when the officer came and handed me that flyer I saw aftermath at the top and I thought oh good I've already contacted them so I've done the right thing so the next day I go to my mom's house first of all there's a huge spider web outside the front door like a big furry spider it's just oh my god it's it's just scary and the minute you open the door is I don't know if you've ever smelled a decomposing human body but it is something you will never forget so I ran in quickly and got her purse and then ran out and I let the aftermath people go in with their hazmat suits and specialized masks and they took pictures and came out and long story short they emailed me an estimate and it was two pronged one was okay we can get the bathroom cleaned up or we can take care of the whole house and just to clean up the bathroom they're like we have to take up the tile we have to remove the vanity the toilet and then it would be $7,000. And then to clean the whole house, they, they said there's blood on the carpet in the bedroom. I'm like, oh my God. So they said, we'll have to cut that out. And the, to do the whole house, it would be $42,000. I'm thinking, my God, it's like, <laughs> my mom owned her house and 
the value of the house, this was almost half the value of the house. So I decided to call the next name on the list on the flyer that the BSO had given me, and it was called Scene Clean. And Michael answers, and he is a former firefighter in Broward, and he was the first company that actually was established to clean up crime scenes and sudden death scenes. He established the first company in Broward County. And I said, wow, you know, I have an estimate from Aftermath. He goes, what is it, like $30,000? And he laughed, and I'm like, yeah. And he says, no, no, no. He says... I will do it for much, much less. And just to tell you, he went in there. He didn't have to remove the tile. He didn't have to remove the vanity. He cleaned everything up. It looks spick and span spotless. And he charged me a quarter of what I was going to be charged with the other company. So what I'm trying to tell you is that you need to, if you find yourself with a scene where there's a lot of blood and you need to clean it up, um, there are companies, but make sure you get the right company that you don't get fleeced. He also found on the refrigerator, there was a stack of cards and a clip and her dentist card was in there. So I was able to get the dentist and the radiologist's phone number for the medical examiner so that they can get her dental records and identify her. I mean, it's, it's very upsetting, first of all, that my mom died. Secondly, that she died the way she did. Thirdly, that she can't be identified. And fourth, that this aftermath scene is so horrendous and that there are companies out there that prey and that are opportunistic and prey on people who are vulnerable, who are mourning a loved one. It's just sad. The other thing I would suggest is if your loved one doesn't have any tattoos or surgeries, you should know who the dentist is or have some way of identifying a body because even in a traffic accident where there's a fire or something, it's hard to identify a loved one. The other thing was the ME said, oh, well, we have a way to lift the fingerprints. And I said, no, my mother would never, ever, ever have been fingerprinted. And she was a nurse, but I don't think you have to be fingerprinted to get a nurse's license. So she wouldn't be in the system. So in order to move on and take care of her estate and everything, you need to have a death certificate. And that can't happen until there's an identification. So it really is important to be able to figure that out. And so I'm hoping that this information I'm giving you is helpful because I was blindsided. And even though I do this full rigor podcast and talk about death, I really hadn't experienced it firsthand. I'd never really lost anybody that was directly related to me or close to me. So it's very upsetting to me. And in fact, in previous episodes, I've spoken hypothetically about death and how to deal with it. In fact, in episode three of my Full Rigor podcast, it's titled 101 Ways to Get Rid of a Body. So, and I kind of did that episode as an instruction, but now having lost my mom, it's seemingly insensitive because... Jennifer and I talked about how difficult it is to get rid of a body, especially the blood at a crime scene, that there are numerous ways that killers dispose of corpses in South Florida. And it wasn't meant to give anybody ideas, but it was to educate on the issue because death is a human condition. Well, indeed it is, and it does happen to us all. It's just shocking when it happens to you or a loved one. So I hope that helps you. That wraps up this episode of Full Rigor. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. Free kids workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. 
on the first Saturday of every month from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com kids. For 25 years, the Home Depot has been building confident future doers with its free kids' workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Wasp Eyes Last, U.S. only. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.